you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Amen. Um, now, most of us, especially those familiar with the Bible, must be wondering, did we read the right text? Right? Like, what, what on earth does Genesis chapter 11 have to do with the ascension of Jesus? It's a fair question. It's a fair question, and it's one whose answer, in my mind, is unquestionably beautiful. Because in some ways, it's going to show us that what God is doing in the world, and ultimately what the Bible has to say about our world, is continuous. It is a cohesive story. It is a story that is being woven throughout time and history and space. And so let's place ourselves a little bit historically before we jump into Genesis 11. What's happened so far, right? It's, it's very early on in the Bible. Genesis is that first book, and it's only 11 chapters in. So again, we're right at the beginning. And yet, there's been a lot that's happened in those 11 chapters, right? We, of course, see the world created by this Creator God. We see humanity given life and breath in Adam and Eve, and we see them do the things that God calls them to do, ultimately, in caring for the earth and stewarding it. But we also know that in a cataclysmic event, at one point in time, they choose to serve their own ends. To live for their own glory rather than the glory of the Creator who created them, right? And that's the fall. And of course, we know um, that from there, there's sort of a spiral for humanity. Adam and Eve have children. Those children murder each other. And from there, uh, well, not each other. One actually makes it out alive. But of course, <laughs> but of course, from there, we go on to see that really human history for the next however much amount of time there is between there and chapter 9. We see that humanity is ultimately just kind of consuming itself, that sin and darkness and death and destruction and all of the things that set us against one another, those things all become true in a world absent of God, absent of our relationship with Him, absent of His rule and peace and kindness and joy and all of the things that characterize that garden that He created us in. And it gets so bad that ultimately in Genesis chapter 9, well really... Genesis chapter 6 and into 9, we, we find the story of Noah, right? Which is that God essentially looks at His creation and He says, you know what, I kind of wish I had started over. Like if there was a control-alt-delete for creation, that's where I'm at. And so He, he brings a great flood and He destroys every, everyone, everything apart from this one man and his family, Noah. And in chapter 9... Um, which is immediately obviously preceding our text, he tells Noah something. He, he gives him a command. And it's not a command that's really unfamiliar. In fact, it's the exact same command that he gave to Adam at the beginning, which was what? To, to go, to be fruitful and multiply, right? To, to fill the earth with people and living things and to cultivate and make it great and good and wonderful. And so in some ways, Noah is, is Adam 2.0, right? That already nine chapters in, God is like, okay, reset, let's start again, let's try with Noah. 
And then we arrive at our text, Genesis chapter 11. And what does Genesis 11 say? Well, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So here's what's wild, right? Genesis chapter 1, God says to Adam and Eve, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory. They disobey, right? God says, okay, let's start again. Let's start with Noah. Noah, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth. Two chapters later, two chapters later, mankind is again in disobedience, right? What do they say? They say, let's build this great tower. Let's, let's all live in this one place, settle in the same space, lest we, what, be dispersed over the whole earth. And so rather than building out, filling the earth, they build up. Their anxiety about being dispersed leads them to this one place. And you see that word one used multiple times throughout our text this morning, one, one, one. Again, the goal here for these people is to be uniform, Right To be united in their uniformity, not unity in diversity, but unity in uniformity. To avoid being made different, to avoid different experience. And of course, maybe the most damning part of our text, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And so much like the world post-Adam and Eve's sin... The goal of humanity remains the same, to make a name for themselves, to instead of filling the earth with God's glory and His image within them, they intend to elevate their name, increase their glory, build a temple for themselves, a monument, if you will, to their strength. And so what's, what's God's response to that? Well, we read the rest of the story, didn't we, right? It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech, so that the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so what happens? God gets His way eventually, doesn't He? He gives them different language, so they're not able to communicate anymore, which I don't know if you've ever like tried to build something. You know, For me, like the pinnacle of my building experience is Ikea furniture. Um, and it's hard enough as it is when you share a language with your wife to build those things, right? And so this is obviously a much larger scope, right? Babel, this is a giant tower that, that, that's supposed to hold or comprise or keep together all of humanity, right? And so you can only imagine the frustration. 
of going from being able to communicate and having clarity of vision, clarity of understanding, everybody driving towards the same goal, everybody understanding what was taking place, everybody knowing the next steps, to now being thrown into confusion by the reality that there's no way for them to communicate with one another. And so the project gets abandoned. They're dispersed throughout the earth. Why does God do this? Like, why does He respond this way? All right, some of us, if we were to think of God in more human traits, might say, well, maybe He's afraid of us. Like, maybe He's got some legitimate competition. Is He afraid of our unity? Well, by, the, the answer to that question is by no means. The, the reality is that humans were trying to realize a promise that God had made them without God, right? Like, God... Like, God's not anti-unity. God's, in fact, incredibly for it. We'll see in just a few moments as we continue in our text. But he's not necessarily anti-humans experiencing great things or even doing great things. He is anti-them experiencing or doing those things apart from himself because he knows that ultimately within them, they're empty. And so here's what would have happened if God had allowed Babel to continue. It would have been the end of history and certainly the end of God's plans. God's plans to have a people that filled the earth with His glory. This wondrous goal and vision for creation that God had from the beginning would have been thwarted. And so He intervenes. And everything that they feared comes to pass, right? Their lips, their speech confused, dispersed over the face of the earth. They wanted to ascend, right? That's ultimately what they said. They wanted the the top of it to be in the heavens amidst or among the dwelling place of the Lord. They want to ascend to God. But instead, God descends and their ascension fails. They are unable to do that thing. And what happens next is really fascinating. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abram what mankind was seeking at Babel, right? So he promises to give Abram a great name, which is what they were looking for at Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. So he says to Abram, the very next chapter, I'm going to give you a great name. He promises to give Abram a land free of anxieties, right? Which is, again, what they're looking for in Babel, let's settle in this land, this one place. We will be peaceful, united with our own language, with all these, right? We'll we'll sort of take care of each other. God promises that to Abram. Then he also promises to bless him and make him into a great nation, actually uh, a multitude of nations. There's only one stipulation that God gives to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. That's this, that he would go be fruitful, and multiply, right? So again, God is trying to lead His people down the path that He has for them. He's saying, look, what you're wanting, everything you're looking for, this peace, this prosperity, this unity, this land, this place to belong, this place to be, where ultimately I am as well, this ascension that you're looking for is going to come through my command through the promises that I make in the way that I ask you to pursue those things. And so he says, go, be fruitful and multiply to Abram. 
Of course, we know that uh, Abram is faithful. He is given a new name, Abraham. God's people are named Israel through Abraham's heritage, his son. And Abraham's grandson, Jacob, sees sort of a, a, a prototype of this new tower that's going to be built. This new dwelling place of the Lord, this new place that the people of God can ascend to, to be with Him. And later on in the Old Testament, Israel actually builds that place. It's a place called the temple. And the temple in Scripture is the anti-Babel. It's the opposite of Babel. It's a place for true worship, not idolatry. So it's, so it's not a monument built to self-worship. It's a monument built to the worship of God. It's a place where God's glory was dwelling and was also at the same time being declared. It glorified the name of the Lord and not man's. It was a house of prayer for all nations, not just one people. And it provided a way for sinful men and women to ascend to God, to meet with Him, to be in His presence. Unfortunately, as we see throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, Israel's sin and idolatry repeatedly defiles that temple. So God makes this place for us that's everything that we wanted it to be, that's everything that we needed it to be, and we continue coming to Him in ways that are in opposition to who He's called and created His people to be, to the ways that He's called us to engage Him. And we try to find satisfaction in these sort of babbles that we create and build, these little monuments to our own glory, these little monuments to our own ability, our own self-righteousness, our own impressiveness, our own resumes, if you will. That's why Jesus is so angry in that moment where he enters into the temple, right? You guys know the story, right? He, this is one of Jesus's like moments that were kind of like, maybe Jesus went a little crazy there. Like maybe he snapped, right? Like in, in, in all of the opportunities that Jesus had to be upset, most of the times he, he's like, he's pretty gracious, right? He's like, it's okay. Like, I love you and I'm here to serve you. Bring the children to me. You know, all, like this wonderful, like very passive Jesus. And then there's this one moment where he enters into the temple and like finds a whip and uses it. Well, this is, this is why. Because this temple was supposed to be the place where we could ascend to meet the living God, to be in His presence. And Jesus says, instead, it's been turned into what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations has been turned into a den of robbers. And so again, even with God's help, we see this picture of man unable to ascend, unable to enter into and remain within God's holy presence, right? God's given us every chance. This is essentially what the Old Testament is showing us, chance after chance after chance, whether it's Adam, whether it's Noah, whether it's Abraham, whether it's the people of God in Israel, whether it's the people of God exiled from Babylon being brought back to the temple, right? Over and over and over again. It's us trying to accomplish something 
that in and of ourselves we can't accomplish. With that in mind, with that history in mind, let's look at Luke 24, which will probably make more sense for today's sermon. In Luke 24, we read a little bit of it earlier, but Luke 24, starting in verse 36, we see the account of Jesus' ascension. And it says this, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among the disciples, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now verse 50, and this is the event. He led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Here's what just happened, right? In verses 36 through 43, we we see what might feel like for us ancillary detail, right? Jesus shows up, everyone's like, oh, this is amazing. He's alive, like he's he's not dead, he's living. And, And Jesus goes to great pains to help them understand that he's not an apparition, right? This is not a hologram, right? This is not R2-D2 beaming out Leia. You know, it's like this is a human in their presence. He says, look, touch my hands, touch my feet. And then he takes, he takes food. He says, do you have food? And like, I mean, we don't even know if Jesus is hungry at this moment. He's just trying to prove a point. He says, look, you see that I'm flesh. You see that I have all of my human nature still within me, upon me, I am human. I am alive post-death in all of my humanity, in all of my human form, in all of my corporal reality. And he does that for a reason. He does that for a reason because verse 50, which is the account of his ascension into heaven, becomes a lot more meaningful when we understand that Jesus is not just some floating spirit, that he's not some apparition, that he's not a ghost, he's not a vision, he's not a mirage, he's not a hologram. 
right? But that He's a human in human form, just like you and me. Why? Why does Jesus want us to know that? Why does Jesus want that to be so clear for us? Well, here's why. For the first time in human history, for the first time in human history, a sinless man is permitted to ascend. A sinless man is permitted to ascend into the heavens, to dwell within the presence of God and to remain there. That means that there is a human in human form like you, like me, that looks like you, that has lungs like we do, that breathes like we do, that has a brain and a heart that pumps blood through his body with toes that wiggle and fingers that move, right? There's someone like that in the very presence of God Himself in the heavenlies right now. So Jesus is alive, and that's where He's alive. And those things are important. This place that no human could go, this place that we've repeatedly on our own tried time and time again to get to, to ascend to the presence of God, Well, Jesus lives there now in in human form. And there's a bunch of different implications to that. I mean, we could talk about it for hours, right? We could talk about how that now that there's a man not only in heaven, but actually the Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus is not only just like living there and kind of hanging out, but that he sits on the throne there, meaning he's the boss, he's in charge. That, that, now, that means the heavens have been made new, that the heavens, what were previously unattainable, that we could not reach with our Babel, that we could not reach even through the temple. Well, now Jesus is there as a forerunner. The heavens are new. They're different. And what that probably means is that when Jesus says he's come to make all things new, not just the heavens, but also the earth, that means that that's probably going to happen too. Because what he says comes to pass. All of His promises come to be. We could talk about how because of that, because of what Jesus has done, that that's something that should be proclaimed in all the earth, right? We should, we should shout it, right? Scream it from the mountains. Tell people that Jesus is Lord, that He's there, that He's reigning, that He's ruling, and that it has implications for all of the rest of humanity and all of the rest of human history. We could talk about how now, now that the earth has been filled, now that God, through the dispersion of Babel, has filled the earth, that now Jesus is reuniting the dispersed nations, that there will be a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, that that diversity that we're trying to build on our own apart from God, that, that, that allows in people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, that that kind of Human melting pot is only accomplishable through this work that Jesus has done. We can talk about the inevitability of Jesus' kingdom.
coming. Which means that any Babel that we could build or try to build will ultimately give way to His ever-expanding, ever-glorious kingdom. That every Babel we could ever try to erect or build will eventually give way to the kingdom of God. Every kingdom or empire that's ever had significant influence on the world today, we now study in history books because they're con. Yet the kingdom of the Lord remains. We talk about all those things, but here's what's really wild, and this is where I want to try to land because I think that um, it helps us greatly for next week in understanding Pentecost. Jesus really and truly does flip everything on its head. You see, what, what Babel sought in their disobedience, we now, as followers of Jesus, get to seek in our obedience. Here's what I mean by that. Through Jesus, we seek to build a united worldwide city, a united worldwide tower for the ascended Lord. It's a massive project, right? It's thoroughly terrifying to know that Jesus looked at His disciples and said, what? Go into, all, like into every nation, right? Teach, baptize, make disciples until I return. That's a worldwide thing that we've been called into. And I know that right now, sitting in a sort of like lukewarm theater with about a hundred of us here, that feels certainly distant. But like that's the scope and scale of what we've been invited into, to actually be a part of the real thing. Like So instead of playing with our little toys in the corner trying to figure out how to ascend, that Jesus says, look, here's this big thing that I'm building, and I'm inviting you into it, to be a part of building it, to be a part of seeing it complete. It's a huge project. It's a huge project that will need extraordinary and supernatural power to complete, which is why Jesus, before he left, said, wait in the city until power is descended from on high. And we'll talk about that next week, but before that happens, we need this truth about Babel to settle into our hearts. And here's what I mean by that. Even though we know all of this, right? or at least now we do. We have to come to grips with the reality that we will never ascend by the traditional methods. Right? If the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results, us continually trying to build our own little kingdoms, us continually trying to make ourselves more acceptable to God, us continually trying to earn God's favor rather than resting on the favor we've been given in Jesus, all of those things ultimately collapse in their due time. Most likely with the last breath that you breathe. And so here's what that means. If we want to truly ascend, there is a way. It's a new way. It's a far better way. It's a way that's filled with peace rather than toil. 
It's a way filled with grace rather than moral rigidity. It's a way filled with help from on high. And so if we want to be great, if we want to build the only tower that will last, we must take our eyes off the babels that we've been trying to build, off the towers that we've been trying to build. I, I think about it this way. I think about it this way. So the tallest building in the world is in Dubai. It's called the Burj Khalifa. It's almost two times the height of the Empire State Building. So if you've ever been to New York, maybe, you know, I haven't been to Dubai, but I know that the Empire State Building is tall, and so if I think of two of those, that gives me some scale. I want you to imagine standing in front of a building that tall, some of you maybe have, and sitting down, cross-legged, and, and taking your, your favorite game out of your bag called Jenga. And I want you to imagine sitting down, setting it up, getting it ready to go, and starting your journey to, to building that tower. Now, here's what we know about the game Jenga, right? We all know how it ends every time, right? You pull the wrong one. You don't set it quite right, and it all comes crashing down. We all have that image in our head. We've all played that game. But now I want you to imagine how ridiculous it would be if you were to walk up to the Burj Khalifa and there was someone there building a Jenga tower <laughs> by themselves and they were trying to convince you that their tower was more glorious was more wonderful, more worth looking at, that you would just be so consumed by what's happening down here that you would never look up to see what's in front of you, the tallest building in the world, you know, this feat of, of modern architecture. And think of how ridiculous that situation would be, right? It would be, it would be totally ridiculous. In fact, you might not even see that person. Like, there might actually be a guy there doing that right now. But nobody knows because nobody cares because everybody's looking at the tallest building in the world. Brothers and sisters, in some way, in some, and the scale is totally off. But what God is doing in the world is, is the Burj Khalifa. What God is doing in the world, it, it forces us to reckon with it. It is glorious and large and extends beyond our brain's ability to understand how it's even possible. And when we, when we focus in on our little Jenga towers, that's what, that's what we're doing. When we focus in on our lives, when we focus in on our, maybe it's our, our rays, or when we focus in on having everything sort of neatly, rightly ordered in our own little lives, that's, that, that's what we're looking at. In the presence of this great, grand, and glorious thing that the Lord is doing in all of the world, among all peoples in the world, we would rather sit in front of it and look at this little tower that we are building that will inevitably come crashing down. And as ridiculous as that image is, that is how ridiculous it is for us to continue living those kinds of lives. Lives that are satisfied with 
that vision, with that reality, as opposed to the great, grand, and glorious things that God is doing in the world that he's called us into, and that, as we will see next week, he is, in fact, empowering us to be a part of. There's infinitely more glorious things that extend far beyond your lifetime and livelihood that he is up to and inviting you into. And so my hope is that you would take that invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Again, Lord, just grateful to be gathered together. Grateful for your grace. Grateful, Lord, that um, having watched for millennia, as man continued to try to build Babel after Babel after Babel, we did not exhaust your grace. Instead, Lord, you sent your Son to do what we couldn't do, to live the perfect life that we should have lived, to die the sinner's death that we deserve to die. And we praise you, Lord, that you have raised him from the grave and that he is now seated at your right hand, reigning and ruling over all of the heavens and all of earth. And we thank you, Lord, that in this story, in this great history of the cosmos, of the universe, we have not only been invited to spectate, but we've been invited to partake. And the glories that you're unraveling in the world, the glories that you're unraveling in the universe, we have a part to play. Lord, it is a good and glorious thing that you're doing. Lord, help us not to be consumed with what Paul would call our brief mist, our brief vapor of a life. But Lord, that we would see eternity extending beyond and know, Lord, that we've been invited into it through the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, that we have a purpose that extends beyond our livelihood, our lives, into eternity, and that we've been invited into it by the work of your son, Jesus. And Lord, would we never be so foolish as to believe that we're strong enough, competent enough, righteous enough, good enough, kind enough to ascend to your throne on our own, but that we would trust in Jesus who ascended on our behalf and who is even there waiting on us now. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.